0: Both teams play hard my man. You think it was a good game? Think both teams play hard. Both teams play hard. Both teams play hard. God bless and good night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: What's up, everybody? Welcome to Not in My House podcast. This is Eric, and uh, I wanted to say we got a very special guest. This guy is known as the Godfather of Oregon sports. He spent over 30 years as a newspaper writer and columnist, earning the title of Oregon Sports Writer of the Year on five different occasions. The Godfather has also uh, co authored two books one, The Long Hot Winter, and the other one, Against the World. And uh, he's also spent time as a radio sports personality. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I want to introduce Dwight James. Dwight, thanks for coming on the show. We super appreciate it. Very Happy much. to be
0: with you. I'm looking forward to it.
1: Thank you. Well, we, got, uh, we got Craig in the house today, and we got Zach in the house today. And um, one of the main reasons we wanted Dwight on is because we have been doing this podcast, um, this special about the Portland uh, Trailblazers, and um, reading the book, um, which is the book that, we were, that you guys were reading, where, where Dwight just comes up all the time with these great quotes,
2: Jill Blazers by Kerry uh, Agers.
1: Yes. So, uh, so we wanted to have you on because, uh, to me, it's your quotes are amazing. So, um, first off, I wanted to ask, um, how did you get started in sports?
0: Wow, that's a that's a tough question to answer. I I got started in sports as a kid. I I was uh, I was bat boy for the Portland Beavers at the age of thirteen, I think, and. That created a, a job for me that I held all the way through college, where I moved up to eventually clubhouse attended for the team. And uh, finally, the last job I had was director of group sales. Uh, I, I made a lot of money as a kid working uh, those jobs, and it got me involved in baseball. And that's really where I thought I would go at some point, is, is be involved in professional baseball as a general manager or a scout or something. I didn't really know. And then I uh, always did some sports writing, uh, went to college originally to major in journalism, uh, didn't really like that major, eventually got a degree in just general studies, social science. But I hooked on as a part-timer. I actually had sold real estate out of college, but I missed being around sports, and I got a job uh, as a part-timer at the Old Oregon Journal, worked for George Pacero there, the great columnist and sports editor. And I just worked into a full time job eventually, and uh, turned out better than being a real estate salesman did i guess and uh, uh, it 's just kind of been staying alive in this business and and keeping jobs is a real that 's a real skill in in, in and of itself because the business is really drying up these days
1: sure sure, yeah, you see it I think you see it a lot in, in like when you read stuff now, the editorial stuff, there's so many typos and things people are missing. And you can yeah. see a lot of the people that the, had those jobs undercover were really important. And you start to see a lack of sports right now. i mean, just in my opinion, you know?
0: No, well, what you're seeing really is that the first thing to go at newspapers and even some websites are the copy editors, the people who read your copy before it gets out there. Yeah. They, they, they let those people go first of all. And, and so, uh, That's what you're saying. Raw copy published directly by the writer. And I don't care how good you are. uh, You're going to have typos. You're going to have mistakes. And you do need that second line of defense, keeping track of what you write. and That's not existing much.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, So when did you start covering the Blazers then? Uh,
0: 1983 was when I finally, I had covered a lot of baseball before that. Uh, University of Portland basketball during a, really exciting era of that franchise or that college. And a lot of college football covered just about everything. When you get started in this, you start at the high school level. I covered preps for three years, really enjoyed that Uh, high school football, basketball and baseball. And I had a great era where Dale Murphy was playing baseball at Wilson and and guys had Danny Ainge playing at North Eugene, just a, a great time to be covering high school sports in this area.
1: Nice. Hey, I'm going to ask you one more question before I unleash you on these guys. Um, so so baseball, baseball was what you really enjoyed, you were saying earlier, right? Yeah, I, I really was,
0: do like covering so, baseball.
1: What yeah. was your team growing up?
0: I, I, well, I guess the Portland Beavers because I work for them, and that's a triple-A baseball team. Okay. But I, I didn't really – I followed the Dodgers a little bit. But, you know, I've been in this business so long, it has been so long since I actually had a team to root sure. for that I've gotten very accustomed to not having a team to root for, and I don't. I, I watch games for games, and, sure. and, and I, I do a lot of that. My son's a big Atlanta Braves fan, so I follow them a lot right. uh, because it gives me a common ground with him, but otherwise uh, not a fan necessarily. Sure. The
1: team. Yeah, I was just curious because because it seems like you. Now, were you were you born in in Oregon too, or no? Okay, born, so you're, born and born and raised. Okay, yeah, because I always wondered. You know, we were talking about that in our pod where there's not, you know, Oregon football wasn't really big right until like the '90s, right? Not at all, right? You, so you know what
0: the joke was, honestly, when the great Alabama football coach Bear Bryant died.
1: the yeah.
0: Joke around here was. Well, they asked his wife where they wanted him buried, and she said, "I want him buried halfway between Corvallis and Eugene as far away from college football as we can get."
1: Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> that's amazing. That's wow, yeah. Now we were just talking about that because we were wondering, like, you know, what do you really root for? And, and, and I'm assuming that was one of the big reasons why the Blazers had such great attendance for so many years, because like that's your big sport there. When you're all well, right.
0: Not only that, but, you know, this was a town that always uh, thirsted to be a major league city. Sure. We wanted to be a big league city. And this was our first chance. We had had the old Portland Buckaroos in the Western Hockey League, which at that time, with the NHL being uh, just six franchises, the Western Hockey League was a very high level of professional hockey. We had the AAA Portland Beavers. We were in the same class with all these cities on the West Coast, San Diego, Phoenix, san francisco seattle they were all in those leagues they were in the pacific coast league they were in the western hockey league they all went to the big leagues and guess who did
1: wow that's crazy hey i want to ask one more quick question who was the major league team to the portland triple a at that time
0: well they had several they they had several the glory years when i covered them really were uh from the late 80s to or the late 70s to the early 80s where they had the Pirates, and the Phillies. And we had some good players coming through here, and we had a general manager named David Hirsch who brought amazing uh, promotions here, including exhibition games that featured home run hitting contests, the famous one where Willie Stargell hit a home run into the balcony at the Molcoma Athletic Club, which was quite a deal at the time. And, uh, yeah, they had an exhibition game with the Phillies where Pete Rose played nine innings, went five for five, climaxed his five for five with a uh, triple where he slid headfirst into third base and I asked him after the game why he played nine innings in an exhibition game and Pete said because I'm a baseball player and I play baseball
1: that's awesome and you don't <laughs> hear that a lot anymore you don't Charlie Hustle man that's, yeah. Yeah, that's amazing um Zach you want to start with the questions
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Thanks again for joining us, Dwight. Um, uh, Everybody's talking about the hot documentary out The Last Dance about Michael Mm -hmm. Jordan and those 98 Bulls. You mentioned that there's some key details left out of that documentary, uh, one of them being the Clyde Drexler injury. Um, Did you maybe want to tell us a little bit more about that? And also, is there any other details that you noticed that were missing specifically from those uh, Trailblazer finals series?
0: Well, you know, I I think we have to understand going in that this was the documentary that Michael wanted and he had control of the footage and he shaped the way this thing would come out. The people that are close to him are the ones who produced it and put it all together. So you were going to get Michael's story all the way through and I think we knew that going in. Uh, The one thing I would say is uh, um, uh, Clyde was banged up going into that series and you saw really... After that season, uh, after that playoff series, really, I don't think he was ever the same player. I think they they went to work on on a uh, cartilage in his knee, and when it ended up, he didn't have a lot of cartilage left, and I think he was dogged by knee problems. And Clyde was one of those guys. People don't realize that he played, man. If he was healthy at all, he played. He did not miss games. He would sit out practices, and that was before players – did that. Nowadays, players sit out practices all the time, but Clyde did that, and, and Rick Adelman was smart. He, he saved it for games. And Clyde gave you 100% every game I ever saw him play, and, and I think uh, that was important. Now, is that to say Clyde would have outplayed Jordan? No, I never said that. I wouldn't say that, but it did detract a little bit from what the Blazers were doing, and it's really unfortunate that the Blazers didn't get to the finals in that 91 season they made it in 90 and 92 but their best team was really the 91 team and that's the team that ran afoul of the lakers in the conference finals and really it was just i i still look back and try to explain how that happened but it happened and that's you know that's why we play sports you, you get upset once in a while and you pull upsets once in a while and that team, I think, had a great chance against the Bulls because it had beaten the Bulls twice in the regular season and, and felt like it had a pretty good handle on how to play them. And then at the same time, it was Chicago's first trip to the finals, and the Blazers had been the year before. And conventional wisdom at that time was you have to go there and lose one time before you can win. And right. if you look back, that's kind of the way it worked for a long time.
2: Yeah. And uh, Clyde actually had a great series being banged up in that finals. And they had the right veterans around him, too. I feel and like Buck Williams and those guys. Um, one thing that we've always talked about on our podcast is we feel like Drexler was really in Michael Jordan's shadow for most of his career. And I just feel like if maybe if he just got over that hump, you know, we'd be talking about Drexler in a whole different way. Because I feel like Clyde Drexler is honestly one of the most underappreciated players of all time, personally.
0: You know, I. I don't know if I could go that far because uh, I always appreciated him, number one. And, and I saw him do some amazing things. He, he could take over games for a span of four or five minutes at both ends of the court. I, I saw it so many times where he would just get, go to another level. And if you needed him to steal the ball or block a shot or get a big rebound, he could always do it. And then yeah. he would convert at the other end so many times grab a rebound in traffic and go coast to coast and dunk on somebody. He did that all the time. He was a terrific talent, and and he played so hard. And uh, I think players, good players, superstar players, don't get the credit they deserve very often for playing hard. I always thought Michael. I always thought Michael played so hard. And people never talked about that. They talked about his great ability. Well, he played hard. Allen Iverson is another one. People talk about his ability. I don't know that I've ever seen a player play as hard as Allen Iverson did. Man, he just kept coming at you. You'd knock him down 10 times. That little guy would get up and get right in your face every time.
3: He, yeah.
0: he, he, you could not deter him. And I think that's a very underrated skill. It's actually a skill for NBA players. And Clyde was very good at it.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Dwight, again, thank you. As they both said, uh, Um, I just wanted to ask real quick about how you feel Clyde was as like kind of an ambassador to Portland, the Portland sports scene during that time. Um, just kind of knowing where the team went after that and seeing how it was before having Clyde as the face of the franchise, was that something that was important and needed at that time?
0: Yeah, it might have been Craig. The thing about Clyde, though, is he wasn't one of those guys like a Damian Lillard, where he's going to get out front and he's going to speak for the team. And he and he's he wasn't as um, I don't think he was as good with the media as say Damian Lillard is. He was a quiet person by nature. He did not say a lot, and and I think uh, in that respect, um, other players probably. I think Terry Porter was more of that sort of public leader, that guy who would step up. Jerome Kersey, another guy so active in the community who did so much. They kind of took care of, the, of that public kind of thing that, that Clyde just frankly never got involved with as much. But uh, I know what you're saying, and, and I know basketball-wise he was the guy. There's no question about that. He was the leader. He was the man for this team. But in the other sides of it, not so much, uh, not so much. And you see it with Terry and the late Jerome Kersey, who, you know, live here. You know, they lived here after they got done playing. Clyde did not. And, and so um, they become a part of the community. Clyde didn't. Yeah. That's just the way it was. Yeah.
3: So I guess that's a perfect lead-in now to the era <laughs> that, was, that was known as the, the jailblazer era. Yeah.
0: Bring it on. <laughs>
3: <laughs> and I just want to say, I, I'm a huge fan of yours. Every time I, I saw that there was a quote of yours coming up in the book, I was like, yes, finally, another, another Dwight quote coming up that I can hear. Um, how, how do you think that using Twitter and the sports blogs now would have changed how that team was covered, even making it more national than it already was, like all those stories?
0: Uh, it would have been more national because some of the stuff that happened was so entertaining. And I, and I want to thank you, Craig, for noticing. I think I did some of my best riding during those years because it, frankly, it was low hanging fruit. You know, it was pretty easy to, 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 to have fun with some of the stuff they did. And, and it's often misunderstood. I've had people talk to me about, Oh, come on. They were, they were smoking pot. It's legal now. Get over yourself. Well, here, here's the deal on that. Here's the way I always felt about it. There were plenty of guys in the NBA at that time smoking, okay? There still are, I'm sure. I, I don't have access to that information. But they didn't all get caught, you know what I mean? And, and it wasn't like, yeah, it was against the law at that time. But the more uh, the more uh, relevant fact of them being caught was you got suspended when you got caught. You are away from your team. And I always that was always the number one thing for me. You're, you're being caught doing something that's, A, illegal, but, B, it's costing your team your presence on, on, in those games. And this was an era where it was so competitive. These teams in the West were all so good. You know, you're talking about fighting Utah and Phoenix and the Lakers. Uh, it,
1: you,
0: you couldn't afford to give away games because some guy was sitting out a suspension when it was there are plenty of other players in the in the league using it who weren't getting caught in such crazy manners like driving speeding 90 miles an hour in a yellow harbor down the freeway from Seattle to Portland and you got and you got weed in the car. I mean come on man, that you don't have to get caught that way it doesn't you know and that's always what kind of amazed me and amused me at the same time I mean, J.R. Ryder sitting in a car with a couple of friends of his, smoking pot out of a out of a Coke can. You know, I mean, just, you know, first of all, you might stand out in those days in Lake Oswego. Second of all, I mean, can you do that at home? Why do you need to be in a car parked somewhere where people can see you? I, I mean, all those crazy things that happened were just, they're too much to believe, and yeah, in an era of social media where some of those stories got out a little more, oh, it would have been wild.
3: Uh, I, uh, I'm glad you brought up the J.R. Ryder stuff because that was one person that throughout the beginning, like beginning to the middle of the book, you just kept saying his name over and over and over and over again, and it was always like, really, he did that? He went to that level? Would would you say that? I mean, I don't really want to say that he was the face of the Jailblazers era, but if there was a face of that era, who, which player or front office member maybe would it be? <laughs>
0: front office <laughs> member. I like the way you said that. Yeah, well, it was Bob Whitsitt to a degree. There's no question. He's the guy that brought all those people there. And, and it was funny because I used to – and I finally – my boss is at the Argonian and said, you've got to stop talking about Bob Whitsitt not living in Portland. That's not relevant. And, and, you know, my argument was it is relevant because his wife doesn't have to go to the supermarket every day and listen to people complain about the bad behavior of that basketball team. He didn't have to live here in this environment where people were so upset about it. He was sheltered from a lot of that in Seattle where they just laughed at the trailblazers and didn't worry so much about that. But I think the on-court face of that team was probably Wallace Uh, Rashid was such a polarizing figure because he had amazing talent. He was a very talented player who I think often disappointed his teammates because he was just so unwilling to – how shall I delicately put this? He was so unwilling late in games to take control of games to shoot the last shot, to make the big play at the end. He always deferred at the end. He didn't want to be that guy that missed the last shot. That's why Detroit was such a great place for him. He went to Detroit. There was no pressure on him there. They had team leaders. They had guys willing to take big shots. They had all that. So he could contribute around the fringes, be a a team guy that everybody loved, joke around, be the most popular guy probably on that team, and at the same time, Make a big play once in a while because it wasn't expected of him. It's so much different when you're that guy, that fourth option, and you get the ball, okay, I'll shoot it, and nobody expects me to make it anyway. But if you're the main guy making the most money and you won't take that shot and you pass the ball off with two seconds to go on the shot clock, that's not a good look.
3: Uh, do, you good think, do you think that that was one of the biggest problems with that, those teams is that
0: Rashid was the quote unquote leader? of those teams you know Craig it, it's possible you know and I I don't know if I could ever I was never you know unless you're really on the inside and and I know I thought they were very well coached I thought Mike Denley did a great job putting this mess together because Whitsitt was a, a he, he was a fantasy sports general manager he would just throw numbers at the roster. When you're playing fantasy sports, just go get the guys averaging a lot of points, a lot of rebounds, a lot of assists, and throw them together because you don't have to worry about chemistry. And his famous quote was, I was not a chemistry major in college. So he didn't concern himself with that. Meanwhile, here's poor Mike Dudley trying to get a squad together out of all this mess. And he had a lot of duplication. You know, he's got he's got the one-year Damon Stoudemire playing very good. And all of a sudden, Rod Strickland drops in his lap. Now, now he's got a conflict there, and he's got problems all over the court with guys needing more playing time. Bonzi Wells starting to emerge. He needs more time. He's got Steve Smith there. He's got, you know, it's just, it was hard to, I, I think it was really hard for Mike to decide who plays. And then, the, really, the biggest game that that group of players, that jailblazers ever played, was the game seven in L.A. against the Lakers when they had the lead in the fourth quarter. And that's, Craig, when you see, the lack of leadership on court surplus, I, I felt. Uh, they had a lot of guys uh, who didn't want to shoot the ball, frankly. Rasheed was one of them. I think he took three shots in the fourth quarter, missed them all. Um, you have Scottie Pippen decades later okay. saying, I should have shot the ball in the fourth quarter. Well, yeah, you should have. And, and, and you have Damon Stoudemire, who played, I think, less than 20 seconds in the fourth quarter because Dunleavy wanted to go with big guards. He always liked using big guards especially against uh, Phil Jackson teams, I think. And, and so it ended up a mess, and it ended up a game that that franchise would have changed the course of basketball in Portland. They would have won that game. They would have won the championship. There was no question in anybody's mind. Whoever won the West was going to win the NBA championship. There was no doubt. And then, then you keep that core together, maybe for longer than five minutes, which, you know, I mean which it just wasn't willing to do. And, you know, you make a bad deal sending Jermaine O'Neal away, who everybody here knew was going to be a player. Every guy who practiced against him and played with him and saw him knew he was going to be a player. And they deal him away for Dale Davis. And it's just criminal what was done.
2: Yeah, because I thought that was interesting how it was just that – after that Game 7 loss, they take the Lakers to Game 7, they're a quarter away from winning, going to the NBA Finals. They they blow the team up. And I said, yeah. Most, most teams need more than just a year or even half a year, to that matter, to really, you know, gel and become a team. Like, it, it really seemed like they are just starting to figure it out. They had a meltdown in the fourth quarter. But, I mean, I feel like that next year could have been a lot different. And I loved what uh, Kerry Egger said in the book was that that game – could have reshaped really the next era of basketball because the Lakers are talking about blowing that team up yeah. and whoever wins that game could go on to be the next dynasty. And I thought that was really interesting to be pointed out because it's true. I feel like if the Blazers win that, we might not be talking about the jail Blazer era. Right. We might be talking about, you know, we might be praising them for winning championships.
0: Well, I, I guarantee you one thing. Okay. If they win, People don't care about the other stuff. And I right. said that at the time, and I say it today. If you win, you can get away with murder. You know, the bad boys, the, the bad boys in Detroit proved that. You can, you can behave however you want. You can do whatever you want. If you win, the people in that town are going to be more than happy. And they, they were happy when that team was winning. It was only when that team – people talk about, all oh, the fans hated the jail. They didn't start hating the jailblazers until they started losing. Then yeah. they hated them big time. They stayed away big time. And, and that's when they were, I think, posting wrong numbers for attendance figures in, in that building. They were hyping it up uh, bigger than it actually was. People were ready to just jump ship on them as soon as they started to lose. Right.
3: Um, so in that era from about, uh, I guess it would be like 96 through about 2006, which deal that Witsit made do you think had the worst effect on the franchise as a whole? Like either, either taking away somebody and bringing in somebody that was, uh, you know, all around minus or taking away somebody that was actually a good leader and bringing in somebody that was
0: kind of, you know, in lack of a better term, a knucklehead. Well, you know, there's a there's a lot of questionable deals that were made, and some of them were made just because he needed to make a trade and not for any particular reason. But I just have to go back to the Jermaine O'Neal deal. I mean, you're trading away a guy who was a perennial all-star, who, who was just a terrific young player, who married a, a young lady from Portland. He still comes back here in the summers often because they've got in-laws here in town. Uh, a great kid, in, in my opinion, who grew up with the franchise. You drafted him out of high school. You put a lot of work into him. He never got to develop here. You spent all that time, all that money, developing him to be an all-star for the Indiana Pacers. To me, that's just craziness. I, 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 I look back at Camp believe it because they thought Dale Davis could guard Shaq. That's why they made that deal. Because Dale Davis, in a couple of little games, did a decent job on Shaq. And they didn't feel with Jermaine's build he could do a job on Shaq. Well, nobody really guarded Shaq. You just had to live with that, you know. And and you trade away a great player for somebody who had one or two, three years left.
1: You know, um, that brings up a good point. One of the things that we had noticed, Dwight, is that when we were going over, like, team by team, year by year, it seemed like they were so – heavy on the power forwards and centers. And I felt like the shooting guards is the one thing, small forward too, but more shooting guards, they didn't really take stock into. And do you think that's one of the reasons why they couldn't develop certain guys where like you got a Jermaine O'Neill, but you've got four centers and four power forwards on the team. You know, did, did that, I mean, the chemistry quote you said earlier really was interesting because we, we saw that in the book too. And it was like, wow, yeah, that makes a lot of sense because if you look at those teams, the depth is amazing. Yeah. But the actual team itself doesn't seem like it's a team that you would want to put out on the floor.
0: Yeah, I think that's true, Eric. I I, I look back and I, I, I look at the rosters occasionally just to remind myself who was on those teams. And Some of their rosters were incredible. Their second team, their, their backups could have finished third or fourth in the Western Conference. I mean, they had some really talented players. Now, a lot of them were on the way down. You know, they added – players like Deadlift Shrimp and guys like that who are pretty much done for their careers. Uh, but part of that is the owner and the general manager trying to recapture their bygone Seattle Sonics days, I guess. But, I, I you know, that's like bringing Sean Kemp in for crying out loud. That was such a horrible idea. And, and I, I, I don't know. I look back and they did have a lot of bigs. But at the time, you did. You know, because center was still a pretty important position and power forward was – they had such a great tradition of great power forwards, you know, and, and uh, Buck Williams was terrific for them. And then they, they had Brian Grant after that. And, and I think guys who helped you win didn't roll up big numbers, but still guys – you know, I mean, Buck Williams is so – Rick Adelman used to tell me all the time, he said, we were never going to be good defensively, and then Buck came in. And Buck was just the guy that reminded everybody of their personal responsibilities to, to defend and how important that was to win. It changed that whole team around in the early 90s in terms of being able to understand their defensive responsibilities. So, you know, I, I understand emphasis on big players, but you're right, they didn't necessarily have they didn't have one big scorer, a guy they could give the ball to, could just create his own shot and, and and run up a lot of points. I think Bonzi was kind of developing into a player like that, but he didn't get a full full, full opportunity to do that. And then you know, it's like he is another knucklehead. I I'm sure I, you know, I've listened now, these guys are like having uh, they're trying to reshape history, him, him and Rasheed with his podcast. And and, the, and Bonzi talks about all these guys that he played against and all this stuff. And You know, I mean, this is a guy who spit on players for crying out loud. He, you know, it, I, I, don't, I don't know. I, I just – I look at this inside, and people think they got a raw deal. I hear it all the time. You are so hard on these guys. Well, yeah, maybe so. Maybe I was hard on them. But, boy, they – I could make a case they deserved it.
3: Yeah, and it's it's like you were saying
0: before, I mean, there
3: were the the you know, citations and arrests for marijuana possession and stuff like that. But then you look deeper into it and I mean some of this stuff is like hardcore like felony type stuff where you got, you know, as you know, a sexual yeah you know, kind of you know, a sexual predator on the team, you know. Uh, you register
0: got, a registered sex offender. Yes. Yeah.
3: So you got stuff like that. You've got, you know, multiple occasions of them hitting women. You've got, you
0: know. Yeah. Um, a lot. There were some of those that never got into print, too. I will tell you there were those that you couldn't really substantiate because they got swept under the rug. But we knew about things that went on that never got never got into print because we couldn't quite nail them down, but we knew they happened. There was a lot of that. There was behind-the-scenes stuff. I think Kerry had it in his book where uh, after a game, Rasheed Wallace wanted to get it at Dunleavy and, and players were holding him back and Dunleavy said, let him go. He hasn't hit anybody all season, <laughs> <laughs> which I thought was a great line. And it was just like one more thing going on. Rashid throwing a towel, it's a bonus. So dis- disrespectful. Of a teammate is it, that kind of stuff. All that's just not how that's not how good teams behave. And all teams behind the scenes have their little fights at practice. We used to be allowed to go to practice, and I saw things at practice, and that's just part of being on a team. Was, but the stuff these guys got involved in was much deeper than that.
3: Uh, was there was there a lot of pressure from the organization at that time to kind of withhold some information, like if you? If you kind of came across something where you're like, hey, I saw so-and-so, you know, I got this tip about so-and-so doing this, would they kind of put the pressure on you guys as journalists to lay off a little bit? Or were you guys, or were they not even really involved that much in the day-to-day kind of story breaking that you guys were doing?
0: Well, (laughs) this is another sensitive subject too, because they were involved at a higher level. Uh, they couldn't really get to me, and they knew that. They they got to me by just treating me disrespectfully, I would say. Uh, at one point, they had somebody keeping a book on me in their office with who I talked to, what I said, things that I might have said to somebody during practice, places I went, all kind. Of, they had somebody kind of following me and keeping a book on it because one of their employees in their office uh, liked me better than they liked them and showed me a copy of it so i knew that was going on but then they also took steps like uh at that point they were a big advertiser at the Oregon. they bought big ads full page ads and that's what you did in those days you advertised in the newspaper not so much anymore but in those days you did so they would put pressure at a higher level such as if this guy keeps ripping us we're not going to buy ads anymore so that would bring kind of my boss down on me because his boss got came down on him and the chain reaction started. So I did hear a few times, uh, go a little easier on those guys.
1: That's like that's almost mafia stuff there, Dwight. <laughs> they got a book on you.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you said that I didn't. Yeah. And I like an like an idiot, I turned the book over to my boss. I said, Here, this is what came to me. Take a look through this. I never got it back, but boy, would I love to look at it today. That right. would make that would make some really fun stuff to take a look because they they did have a lot of inside stuff that I don't know how they got.
3: So at, and just to continue on with the organization, were there a lot of them a part of that, that were just kind of turning a blind eye to what the players were doing at that time?
0: You know, that wouldn't have been so bad turning a blind eye. That's not as bad as covering for it. And I think there was a lot of cover-ups going on and they tried their best to cover and, it, it, was, it was a tough place for people to work. And let me just say that that organization had some people working there over the years. They've always had. And I go back to the era when Larry Weinberg owned the team. And those years were amazing. He was a, a very, uh, very good boss to all those people, knew everybody's name in the office, even though he lived in California. And uh, they've always had good good people to work with, their PR staff, and and their people in the office that are around that you see and that you talk to, solid people. And there were times where I felt sorry for them. I think they got put in a really untenable position to have to somehow alibi or, or make excuses or, or cover for things that the players did.
3: Yeah. And you know going back to Bob Witsit I am I'm 100% with you in every quote that you ever had about him and it's just like it's amazing the way that he was trying to build these teams and throw money and like it's like monopoly money almost and just seeing the salaries the salary cap numbers that he was like just blowing past and having you know 30 million more in salary than the next closest team and being in the luxury tax by 40, $50 million every year. Um, if, if I could ask you to give me maybe one word or a sentence about what you think about Bob Whitsett, would, would I be able to get that from you?
0: <laughs> well, I guess one word would be absentee. He was absentee all the time. Uh, the other thing I, I would say is, uh, I don't think about him much. And even at the time, I didn't think about him much. I I thought it was unfortunate that he wasn't around more often. He flew down on the charter with Paul and then flew back to Seattle very often. He did have a condo in Portland and was down here some of the time. But I think a GM has to have his finger on the pulse of his team, has to be around the team. Has to be on road trips occasionally. Has to just know what his coach is thinking. There has to be more interaction. He has to see things with his own eyes. And not too many people have attempted to be a GM in that kind of situation. So uh, Bob Wittsett got paid a lot of money, and he's been pretty well-suited ever since. I think he ever got back into doing what he wanted to do, be general manager of another team.
3: Yeah, and does that kind of – that the way that he was a general manager that I guess that kind of would mesh with the way that Paul Allen kind of oversaw the team at the time where he was, he was based in Seattle and he wasn't really ever around to, and they even said like they would try and call him and he'd be, you know, someplace somewhere and they'd just go ahead with whatever move that they were trying to make and execute and stuff like that. So what does that Yeah. Mean?
0: And, and, and keep in mind that Bob Witzig went over the salary gap like that without Paul's blessing. And I do remember there was one league-wide vote on this salary cap. Like, should we continue with the cap, or should we try going without it? And there was only one team that voted for going without a salary cap, and guess who it was? They, they, their, their plan was to just outspend everybody. And when you're as rich as, as Paul was, and he was richer in those days than I think he was when he died. I mean, he was worth $30 or something like that. Uh, at the time, and they were willing to spend a lot of money on, on a set for, for their team just to win. And uh, no other team in the league was to spend that kind of money. And that's why I think in, in the league office and among other teams, there was a lot of resentment toward this team. And I think it carried over into other situations, other penalties, other things going on with this franchise because of that kind of resentment that they were willing to do whatever good to win. They were willing to put up with bad behavior from their players and to spend a lot of money for those players. And that is not something that teams usually want to do.
2: Yeah, because with all the money that Witset and Paul Allen were spending on the team, you would think that they would invest in maybe like a handler or somebody to really kind of keep these guys out of trouble on and off the court. Maybe – Uh, teach them how to be a little bit more professional I mean was that ever like a presented thing or even a thought in the management or did they just completely not care about that and just put the best talent out there
0: well I don't know the answer to that but my guess would be they didn't want their players to be handled because the players wouldn't have liked that and then they would have disharmony on the team and they didn't want their players to be uncomfortable. Um, but they, they should have taken steps. There's no question about that. Nowadays, there's so much security around these teams that they do kind of have buffers around them to keep them from making bad decisions. And the Blazers have a couple of pretty good security people that travel with them, that are around all the time, that make sure that bad element is kept away from them, that they're protected when they go out in public. I mean, I remember the second time that Rod Strickland came, to the Blazers. And I I actually got probably as close to Rod Strickland as I've been to any Blazer player. I loved Rod. I I think Rod is a tremendous guy. He still is. I, I always loved him because he's one of those players, when the game ended and you go to him and you say, what happened, Rod? He would take that game on his shoulders if he lost. He would say, my bad. I screwed up. I should have done this. I should have done that. Very few players are as accountable as Rod was, and he had a great sense of humor about himself. He was self-deprecating. I just like Rod. Uh, uh, shoot me. But, but you know, I, he's a guy, and I told him the, say, the second time he came here, I said, Rod, I love you, man, but you've got to get a driver. Get a driver because he's getting DUIs all over the country. And it's like, right. come on, you can't be doing that. Just get some – you can afford to get a driver. Nowadays, it's Uber. These guys take Uber. Thank goodness. And, and right. I think that that's the key. But you didn't have it then. And
1: they yeah. didn't
0: want to spring for the cab, I guess.
1: We were joking <laughs> around when we were doing the podcast saying whoever came out with Uber and Lyft probably, like, maybe lived in the <laughs> Portland area.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Or they were just set of NBA fans because it's not just Portland. But uh, there's just so many reasons. I always wondered that myself. It's like, my goodness. Yeah, you you, you can. I, I would want to have the limo. And if I were making 20 million bucks a year, I would have a limo. OK, I would also have my car. I drove once in a while. But, you know, if I'm going out at night, give me that limo. That's I don't care to be the driver.
2: Right. Yeah. I guess that leads me into my next question. Who is uh, probably the most misunderstood player from those teams or uh, also the most pleasant? I mean, I'm assuming maybe Rod Strickland since you just talked about Rod. But who would you say is the most professional, most pleasant, uh, most surprising, I guess?
0: Uh, Rod was very professional, surprising. Um, let me see. Uh, that's one that I'd, I'd want to take some time with because I don't want to miss somebody. Um, gosh. Buck Williams a very professional guy in the way he approached the game. Terry Porter, the same way. Uh, let's see, a misunderstood guy. Uh, who was it that fans didn't like that um, might have been misunderstood? Uh, you know, Duckworth was a little that way. Uh, towards the end of his time here, fans really got on Duckworth. They weren't pleased with him. He had trouble controlling his weight. Um, he uh, had a couple of bad playoff series after being great in the 90 playoffs from start to finish pretty much. He was really good with clutch free throws late in games, big rebounds, things like that. But, you know, he had trouble in the 91 playoff series against the Lakers when Vlade Divac was flopping around like a big salmon on the deck of a boat and, and getting cheap fouls called on Doc. He had a terrible time dealing with that, and I think it really hurt him moving forward. He was very misunderstood, um, but I loved the guy. I I thought he was – he had such a big heart and tried so hard. He tried so hard. He wanted to be good so bad. He wanted to be liked so bad. And coming from where he came from, where nobody ever thought he'd be a player, all even way through college, people didn't think so. And the Blazers got him – Walter Berry in a trade with San Antonio that was an amazing deal so anyway Duck would fall into that category for me nice
2: and then um, you know it's kind of my personal belief that the hiring of Nate Nate McMillan really kind of helped get that team out of the quote-unquote jailblazer era. I mean, obviously getting Witset out of the front office probably had a lot to do with it too. Um, but, I mean, would you agree that maybe Nate McMillan kind of turned that franchise around, or was there another move or trade that really had a bigger impact, do you think?
0: You know, here's what I think about that. The guy who turned that franchise around was Paul Allen. He's the guy that turned it around. Somebody got to him. He had a realization somehow. From now on, things are going to be different. And they were. His GMs were always getting their marching orders from ball. From then on out, after, after Witsit was gone, they had some real guidelines. They started doing more exploration on players' character. They started bringing in the right people. Um, yeah, I think Nate was, Nate was really good in that he didn't stand for any bad behavior or anything. I don't think he was a great coach. That's the one thing where where I I would say – uh, they could have done better coaching-wise than they. in terms I, – I just didn't like the way they played. So much open court stuff where they just spread the floor, give the ball to Brandon Roy, and just have him play one-on-one for two, three quarters at a time, it seemed like sometimes. And in the playoffs, that's why they struggled all the time. You can't really play that way too much, or teams will learn how to load up on you, make it tough on that guy, get the ball out of his hands. Especially in today's era, it's really hard to play that way because they're going to run double teams at you the way they do Dame. Yeah. They, they do that to Dame all the time now, and they get the ball out of his hands. And so uh, I didn't like the way they played. I thought Cheeks was really a bad coach. He's the worst coach they've ever had here, in my opinion. He couldn't coach his way out of a paper bag. I'm telling you. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> he, he was the worst. I, I've never seen a guy in that position. You, you didn't want to look at video. You'd see the video guy standing there after a game. Cheeks is on his way out the door, the video guy standing there. In those days with a video cassette for him to take with him, you know, from that night's game, and he'd just kind of wave him off and walk out the door. Wow. Nah, that's, that's you know, yeah, <laughs> we, better than that.
2: We We've talked a lot about that on the pod, how we just couldn't even fathom how Cheeks got that position because I always thought John Lucas would be a great fit for that team, just with Better his, fit. Yeah. with his recovery and his program that he had. I thought that would have been great for that team at the time. Um, but uh, this is my last jailblazer era question, I promise, but uh, <laughs> I, I do have one question because you were uh, really up close and personal with the team a lot during that era. and you mentioned how you were at praxis and everything. Was there ever a story that you tried to write about that really didn't get the exposure you thought? that you thought it would, or is there something that, I mean, what's the most bizarre story that maybe we don't know about?
0: Well, I'm not sure what you know about what you don't, but the story that I always tell, because people ask me about it all the time, part of it made it onto television, was after the game where uh, we were sitting courtside in those days. So you got a lot better picture of what was going on on the bench and on the sidelines during games. And there was one game where, P.J. Cardosimo took Cliff Robinson out of a game, and Cliff didn't think he should come out. And on his way to the bench, he looks over at P.J. and says, why did you take me out of the game, you stupid bleep bleep? Put it that way. <laughs> Hyphenated word, okay? He says that to P.J., and I know P.J. heard it. <clears throat> so I don't think – my recollection is Cliff didn't play in the second half. So I go in after the game. We're all crowded around Cliff. And typically, I'm the only guy that'll ask the question. The TV guys are all standing there with mics wanting to live up the answers to my questions, but they're not asking. So in my typical fashion, I said, uh, Cliff, why did you call the coach a stupid bleep bleeper? And he looks at me like, this- No, I didn't do that. I said, what do you mean you didn't do that? He said, no, I wasn't talking to the coach. I was talking to a fan who was yelling at me. And I said, well, then why did you call the fan a stupid bleep bleeper? And at just that time, J.R. Ryder decided to inject himself into the conversation. And he came over and he said, you know, you're always trying to cause trouble in here. You're the devil himself. You're the devil on earth. You're always trying to cause problems for us. And he, he kind of tried to get in my face, so I got in his face, which you have to do. You can't let that. You can't show weakness. And I knew I'd be a millionaire if he ever did anything. So I wasn't all that worried. I was a much younger man in those days, and it's like I got back in his face, and I said, "You know, coming from you, I consider that a compliment." And and he uh, he backed down at that point, and then other teammates intervened. That kind of split it up. But Joe Becker, for years, had that video. And he showed it a time or two on television. And he was always going to give it to me. He never did. But I'd probably like to see it again because I'm probably not getting everything word for word. But uh, that's what went on. And Ryder was famous. One night he did something. And I can remember stopping him. He tried to dodge the media. And we caught up with him in the hallway. And uh, I asked him why he did say something. And he said, you can only know. And I said, well, what, what does that mean? He goes, well, you can only know. And I said, well, why did this happen? He goes, you can only know. And I must have asked him five questions in a row. And the same answer was, you can only know. So, and the only definition of that I got from him was, you can only know. So I have no idea what that meant. But that was, I think, a few days before he went on his rant at the practice facility about how they were hanging people 40 miles outside of Portland from trees. And, you know, it's just like, I, I remember looking at the PR guy, and the poor, it was John Christensen, I think, at the time, was the PR guy, went on to have a, a great PR career in Southern California, he's probably a very wealthy man now, old friend of mine, but John was just shaking his head like, oh my God, how am I going to, what am I going to do with this, you know, it, it, was, it was terrible.
3: I feel like J.R. was one of those guys that had a big-time persecution complex where he, he would do a lot of things wrong, and he would think that it was everybody else's fault why he did those things wrong. Is that, is that a, a pretty true assessment, I guess?
0: Yeah, yeah, I think so. And I think he was also probably at least two quarters short of a buck. I, I, I don't know. He, you know, this is a guy who – I mean, I knew all about him before he arrived – yeah. Because, because uh, um, he had threatened a sports writer in Minneapolis and yeah. said, you know, I know people, so don't give me any more gas. I know people who can take care of you. And it was like, I'm sorry, that's a death threat. I mean, that, that's not good. And, and I do remember uh, Mike Schuler who coached in Portland a while, and Mike had a lot of trouble with Clyde. You know, he's always on Clyde and trying to get Clyde to practice harder and all that, whereas Rick Adelman knew. He had seen that. He had a ringside seat, and he knew, look, I'm going to take that great Clyde in games. I'm not going to worry about the other stuff because I know he shows up and plays, so I'm not going to worry about it. But Mike had a lot of trouble with Clyde, and I remember running onto Mike later in his career when he was scouting for somebody. And he, he pulled me aside and he said, you know, Dwight, I, I had Clyde. You know, I had Clyde in Portland. Well, then I, I was in Minnesota. I had this writer guy. He said, "Let me tell you something. Clyde Drexler is a choir boy. He is a choir boy compared to this guy, Ryder." He said, "Yeah, Mike, I've heard that, but that was that was Mike Schuler's definition of J.R. Ryder. He's a lot worse than Clyde was."
1: Hey uh, Dwight, I want to ask you a quick question. Um, yeah. What do you think? What do you think the biggest injury? throughout the years, had the, the biggest effect on the Blazers? Do you think it was Walton? Do you think it was um, Bowie? Do you think it was Odin or Roy? What do you think the, the toughest injury was in that time period that really affected the Blazers?
0: Well, I think you have to start with Walton because we we had already seen what was possible with Walton. We never knew with Sam. We never knew with Greg Odin. We, we didn't get to see that. We saw that Walton could bring you a championship. We saw that. And he did. It was Walton. It wasn't those other guys. It it was Bill. Now, they had other great players around him, but Bill Walton delivered that championship, and he could have done it again had he stayed healthy. Uh, And it's too bad because in today's medical climate, I think they could have kept him healthy. I I, I, I kind of believe the same thing for Sam. I, I think if they had known the extent of Sam Bowie's injuries, they could have kept him much healthier. And I'll tell you something else. I saw Sam practice. I saw Sam play his rookie year. He was going to be a terrific player he wasn't going to be michael jordan but he was going to be a terrific player he could run like hell he could he had great hands he could shoot the three he did a lot of things good passer. good team guy i like sam a lot sam was a good player and and i think it's a shame he got hurt odin i think he could have been a real factor and if you put him together with brandon roy that was going to be a pretty good team but both of them had health problems and and, really, Roy's injury was a really tough one for the team to deal with, too. Th- those were both really brutal injuries, uh, especially Odin. Um, and, it's, you know, with the case of Odin and with Sam, you know, the critical thing is the players they could have had if they hadn't taken them. That's what sure. makes those injuries look worse. You know, I mean, it's, 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 a, really, it's a really tough thing. To I'm
1: do. glad you bring that up about Sam because all of us on the pod feel like he – is the most misunderstood when it comes to being a draft bust because yeah. we don't feel like he was at all. We just felt the injuries hurt him and he played like a good 10 years. Yeah. You know, it just wasn't the same because of the injuries. So, and, and, you know, you can't really say that about Oden either because you don't, you don't know where the potential was, but it's hard to label guys like that bus, you know, for for us, like busts are guys that play a couple years in the league and don't do anything. You right. don't get their potential, you know? Yeah.
0: A bust for the trailblazers would be LaRue Martin. If you go you go back in history and look at LaRue Martin, a guy that they they didn't really even scout him. They saw him on TV in the NCAA final four and thought he looked terrific. He did. But, you know, the fact was God love him, but LaRue couldn't play. I mean, that was the big problem. And and that was a high pick. That was a number one pick, as I recall. It was a real high pick. And, uh, just didn't work out yeah Uh, Dwight if the league
2: were to resume right now I know the Blazers are standing in ninth place Uh, everything with like the COVID-19 going on right now I know that teams have kind of been at a standstill not been able to practice Uh, do you know where the Blazers are at with that right now and if the league is to resume do you think they have an advantage or a disadvantage to make a playoff run with all these teams kind of basically starting over to build some momentum
0: well, here's the thing with that. I, I I think the longer we wait to get whatever NBA we're going to have, the harder it is for me to see that they're going to finish the regular season. I, I just think at some, it's going to get too difficult to fit those games in and then right. still have a playoff series. And all the money for the NBA is in the playoffs. And while we feel bad in Portland about not having a shot to get in uh, – I don't know that the rest of the league would feel all that bad about it. I would like to see uh, I would like to see the Western Conference have a sort of mini tournament for that final playoff spot because it's not as if Memphis had that thing locked down. They did not. Right. Western Conference those, those spots are pretty much locked down, but I think if you took the five teams in the west that, still mathematically had a shot at that, and just let them play it out, give Memphis a bye somehow because they were in the eighth spot. I think that would be kind of cool. And if, it, if they did do that, I think the Blazers would have a great opportunity given that they would have the healthy Nurkic and the healthy Zach Collins. They would be transformed as a team from what they were this season. Now, is that fair? You know, maybe not that's certainly not a representation of what this season should have been. But at the same time, you know, it's not going to ever be fair for everybody. So right. I don't know what you'd do. I, I think uh, it might also be – you have to make real sure about Nurkic chen Collins moving forward. If you're going to play him in one just one game or two games um, – is it worth that? Is it worth risking them? Are they 100%? You've got to be sure they're 100% recovered, or you just wouldn't even take that gamble.
1: Dwight, uh, what, what did you think of um, the Blazers adding Melo this year? What are your thoughts on that?
0: Well, at the start, I thought it was kind of a big gamble. As it turned out, it was terrific. I, I just thought it worked out great. He was a great guy for that team. I think players learned a lot from him, not only the way he played, but the things he imparted with them in the locker room and at practice and stuff, I think there's a lot of wisdom there. And there's so much respect for him as a player that other players definitely listen to what he said. I, I just think it was, uh, it turned out to be a great move. And I, I, I Neil Olshay pulled a rabbit out of his hat with that one. Because if you just said, who can they add that would fill it? His name wouldn't even have crossed my mind. I, I pretty much thought Mello was done. And I, I, I was really surprised to hear that, they had reached a deal with him and that he was coming aboard. And then I was surprised at how well he played. played very well. It wasn't vintage Carmelo now, but he played very well.
1: Yeah. He's a good fit for, for that team. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's like yeah. um, one of the things that we talk about a lot that we miss, because we're kind of old school guys when it comes to basketball. We miss a lot of the mid-range game and a lot of the big yeah. guy. You know, are It seems like it's more of a, a three-point shooting contest in the NBA nowadays for the most part compared to – the big man seems almost non-existent. Can I get your thoughts on that, on what you think?
0: Yeah, it's funny. I'm really torn on that because for years I lamented um, the idea that it was such a big man's game. If you weren't born seven feet tall, you weren't going to be an impact in the NBA. And and I think I always rooted for the ABA three-point line before they had it in the NBA. I always thought – Why don't they bring that in? They brought it in. I liked it because it gave a normal-sized human being a chance to be a real factor in the NBA game. Um, And I also said, for years, I said this in the 90s, why aren't coaches taking more advantage of the three-point line? I would bring a guy up. I mean, it's like Steve Kerr. He wasted away on the bench in Portland. There were so many situations where they could have thrown him out there. I knew at that point of his career he couldn't guard anybody. So many offense, defense situations. Put Steve Kerr in the corner. He's going to hit that shot to win a game for you. Those guys were so valuable, and they still are, guys who can make threes. And coaches just didn't trust it didn't want to be the first one to say, okay, we're going to go all out with threes. And I remember David towards it telling me, you know, they just don't do it right in the NBA. In the ABA, if we were on a three on two fast break, if you had a shooter, he would pull up at the line and shoot an uncontested three. For us, that was better than a layup. And I thought, really? Guys really did that? And they did. And you're seeing in the NBA now, that uncontested three is a great shot. And I I just – so I'm kind of torn. I I miss the impact of the idea of get the best shot. The best shot is the shot closest to the basket. Moving further out is not as good a shot. But I think you're standing in the way of progress if you try to fight what's going on right now because it's just – it's gotten down to simple mathematics. And, And now it's, you know, Damian Lillard's taking it to a whole new level. I mean, you just can't guard guys that far out. So you're going to start seeing more stuff in the mid-range and inside if more players can shoot from that far outside. You're going to have to guard them from out there. That's going to open up a lot of stuff on the inside. It's a great time, by the way, for a for a mobile post guy with great post moves to come into the league because he'll eat people alive. If he's got great footwork, there's not going to be as much opportunity to double-team down there. You're going to get a lot of one-on-one coverage. So I think that, that is uh, entirely possible in today's game. Yeah, and you
3: mentioned Steve Kerr and his time in Portland. Did, did you have much of a chance to kind of get to know him, and did you kind of feel from his time there that he would become a, the kind of coach that he is now or the kind <laughs> of you know, front office member that he was in Phoenix?
0: Well, all we knew about Steve was he's a very bright guy. And I didn't know if he'd ever want to coach. I always saw him as a general manager, which he did. And uh, he has turned into a brilliant coach. And he's one of those guys that you love to cover because he's always got great quotes. He's well thought out in in what he suggests. It's not all just in the best interests of his team. He will tell you things that might be good for the league. Uh, He's very complimentary of other players and other teams. I, I like Steve Kerr a lot, and, and uh, um, I just smile when I think of him because uh, he's a funny guy, and it's uh, I'm glad he's in the league. Put it that way.
3: Yeah. I, I I think one of my favorite quotes from the book was when they were playing a playoff series and Zach Randolph was asking about playing a game four and game five in a five-game series when they were about to get swept, and Steve <laughs> telling Zach that he was going to start the next two games <laughs> – and I was like really I'm gonna start and he's like yeah you're gonna start you'll be out there man (laughs) and I just feel like he was he was that kind of guy that that still kind of brings that levity to a locker room even with the media and I feel like that's something that's kind of rare where you can mix the blend of humorous and still having you know a really smart take on a lot of different things yeah uh
0: there's some good stories that I wish I could tell you but he's really uh He's a very funny guy and a very sensitive guy. He's helped people out. I know when Chris Haynes was having some problems, and they had a GoFundMe account for Chris's wife's brother who was shot, and they needed money for a funeral and stuff. And Chris was covering the Warriors that time but hadn't started on the beat yet, and he barely knew Steve, and Steve was probably the biggest benefactor in that GoFundMe account throwing money their way just to help them out. And I thought that was such an act of, of kindness, uh, with nothing expected in return. Steve just one of those guys; he's a great guy.
1: He seemed to have such a interesting life too, because of his dad, you know. Yeah, yeah. Kind of fascinated when he was a freshman in in Arizona, and and you know, when you hear him talk too, like not only being a smart guy, it's like he's he seems like he has such a good head on his shoulders. And I think a lot of people that would be very difficult to go through that tragedy being like a 19 year old kid or 18 year old kid in Arizona. You know what I mean? Like that whole thing happening. So yeah, a lot of respect for him. You know, I, that was the thing I was wondering about those teams was like, man, it's like Sesame street. It's like one of these things doesn't belong. And like, when you see him on that rock, with <laughs> the other yeah. guys you are like, yeah. this has got to be, uh, I got, I, I got, I got one more question for you personally. Um, So in the book, they talk about this great story about Brian Grant and uh, Sabonis drinking at the Applebee's and Sabonis slapping Grant in the face because he didn't look him in the eye when they were doing shots. Was there any (laughs) other places that – that the Blazers hung out—that would be weird, like an Applebee's. You know what I mean? Like, was there? Well,
0: in those days, uh, with the Jail Blazers, it was strip clubs. I mean, it's right. basic. It. That's that's, and they were very happy to be in Portland. Some of those guys, because there were so many of them in those days. I mean, right. uh, Portland was, you know, the leader, the worldwide leader in strip clubs per capita. <laughs> so, as far as I knew. Uh, there was a strip club out on Marie Drive on the way to the airport, and guys would drop in there after their flight arrived back in Portland at night. Uh, other than that, I, let's see, where did they end up? Uh, I don't know. I, you know, I, was, I wasn't I was hanging with them. trust me. Sure, so sure, I, sure. I don't really know. It wasn't my business. You go from strip clubs to Applebee's.
1: I, <laughs> yeah, made, who do? big difference. <laughs> it's just wonderful because you don't expect, like, you know, I take my kid to Applebee's because he likes the little chicken nuggets. Could you imagine seeing, like, Sabonis getting, you know, smacking Grant in the face and, I, you know, just, yeah, there's, you know, not that I would take my kid to Applebee's at whatever time they were there, but I yeah. just thought it was an interesting, like, of all places, you know what I mean? Yeah, um, yeah. Zach or Craig, you got any other good questions for Mr. Dwight before we let him promote himself and uh, and end this podcast?
2: I don't think so. Thank you so much, Dwight, for answering questions. We really appreciate the time. You were awesome. Yeah, thank you. thank you
3: very much. We really appreciate it.
0: You know, I, it was my pleasure, guys. I I love talking to basketball people, and you guys are obviously good basketball people. And uh, I appreciated the conversation. Uh, and thanks for the opportunity. If anybody wants to read this stuff I'm writing. Uh, website for Comcat or for nbc sports northwest it's nbcsportsnorthwest.com and you'll find my writing there just about every day and uh actually i gotta get back to work because i think i might
1: be running the website this afternoon because my <laughs> boss my <laughs> boss
0: has got something else going on so
1: i better get busy here we love that you're still involved with basketball dwight um it was you know it was my idea to check you up to see if you had twitter or whatnot and uh It's glad to see that you're still doing it, which is awesome. You seem super passionate about it, and you gave us so much knowledge today. That was amazing. So we really appreciate you, sir, and uh, thanks for spending the time with us.
0: Look, at my age, anybody that wants to spend time with me, I got time.
1: (laughs) Well, I appreciate that. Dwight, have yourself a wonderful day, okay, sir? You too. Take care. Take care. I think we actually lost Craig. (laughs)
2: Uh, did Did you accidentally exit both of them out? The Zoom invite.
1: I th- I think Craig couldn't take it anymore because how great the interview was, and he had to like <laughs> he had he had to go.
2: Yeah, but I mean that that's so what what a great guy Dwight James is. I'm just so glad he took the time to hang out with us for the day. That was awesome.
1: Well, yeah, I want to think about how valuable he is to closing this whole thing out. I mean, you know, he has over 30 years or almost 30 years of experience with the Blazers. You know, from yeah. like you said, nineteen eighty three and he's still working with them, which is amazing and, and uh ton of information he gave us I thought was amazing because when are you when are you ever gonna get that type of information? I mean I felt like he was just candid and loose and just you know, I just felt like he was he was just a, a wealth of knowledge and he was really happy to share that. And and I and I, I appreciate that. I know we do for sure. So um yeah, any, anyways, last, any last thoughts on on Dwight before we get out of here? Uh you know, it was just really
2: amazing how Craig and I, because we, we read that book and we kept seeing Dwight James' name show up and he kind of became like one of our one of our heroes in a way, just the way that he was talking about the team and how he was so like relentless and just always spoke his mind and spoke the truth no matter what it was. And after talking to him, you know, it was just really cool to kind of, you could feel that passion that he has in the writing. And it was really cool to be able to feel it talking to him and uh, rather than just reading it. But uh, for us to be able to go out there, reach out to him, to the number one guy that we wanted from that jailblazer era to come talk to us since he wrote about all of it, to, to get him was so valuable. And I'm just so grateful that he was able to do that.
1: And I think the other thing that's really neat is hearing him actually talk instead of yeah. like reading. Because like you read the quotes and all this other stuff, but then you hear him talk and you can genuinely hear that you know, he was a fan. You know what I mean? Yeah. It wasn't just like he had to write about them. You can tell like, like there was a lot of history and the way he talked about certain players surprised me in like a positive way, you know? So I thought it was great to have a guy like Dwight on the show. And and Dwight, thanks again for coming on. We super appreciate it. Um, make sure you guys follow us. Uh, I cannot believe how many reviews we've gotten in the last week. So, Thanks so much for that. There's a lot of people up in Oregon that are listening to us, which is beyond obvious now with all the wonderful reviews they've given us. But, you know, it takes, takes two seconds. You know, doesn't cost you a thing. doesn't cost you a dime to just click that five stars or just write a quick review. It really does help us, I promise you. And we're all over social media. So, um, for Craig, who just disappeared, um, and Zach, <laughs> <laughs> this is Eric, and uh, we wish you guys a great week and uh, thanks for tuning in. Uh, by the way the the numbers for the jailblazers have been absolutely amazing. so thank you so much. Yes. For that. we worked so hard on that and to see those numbers come together is absolutely amazing. So you guys have a wonderful week, and we'll catch you soon. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: teams play hard. Both teams play hard. Both teams play hard. God bless and good night.